Hi, and welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Alicia Burtis, and I have a PhD in Chemistry and Polymer Science. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new. Today's episode is Educate episode number two. We are talking about electron microscopes currently in the Educate episodes and part two will be about sample preparation. If you are looking for the perfect image, then sample preparation is crucial and the type of sample preparation you need specifically for your sample is also essential. This will help ensure that you know that the data that you obtain is in fact true and that you can believe it and use it with confidence in your articles or research. So basically, the work that goes into preparing your sample is almost more important than actually loading your sample into the electron microscope and doing the analysis, because the rest of that will be completely useless if you do not do a correct sample preparation. Now, what students normally do to find methods for electron microscopy sample preparation is to hop onto the internet and find related articles and their specific sample type what most students will find, however, is that these articles may be leaving a few steps out of their procedure, or that some of the procedures for the same analysis differ quite a bit. It is important to gain a number of sources before you even decide to carry on with the method. It is also clever to maybe consult your peers and to talk to your electron microscope analysts at your institute before making a decision. Material science overlaps with many types of fields. Polymers have been used in many studies, such as in food, uh, for coating of fruits, um, in medicine, for capsules, for drug delivery, uh, detectors and sensors, for viruses, even as nanofibers, uh, for wound treatments. Um, and they're also used in engineering and commercial uses, such as paints and car parts and packaging, just to name a few. So to ensure that we have a broad topic here where everybody can relate, we want to include all types of samples, especially in polymer science where so many fields collide with polymer science. Uh, we will be talking about a few examples of various types of samples, such as nanofibers, nanoparticles, coated fruits, bacteria and viruses, and materials like heavy metal adsorbents. During my time as an EM analyst, I've worked with a few interesting samples, all of them showing these wonderful 3D images due to the sample prep protocols that we have in place. So firstly, we are looking at scanning electron microscopy sample prep procedures, uh, specifically for sturdy materials that will not be susceptible to change in vacuum or temperature, or that do not have any fine features that may be distorted due to handling. These samples can simply be carefully extracted or cut into a plus minus one cubic centimeter square and mounted on an aluminum stub with adhesive carbon tape. Aluminum stubs um, are usually small, circular little stubs that can fit into a hole within a holder, which is then placed into the sample chamber of the microscope. Adhesive double-sided carbon tape is uh, usually pure carbon tape 
but you can also use aluminum tape if you are afraid of the carbon interfering with your sample. But this carbon tape usually helps make the sample very conductive and also just secures the sample very nicely onto the stub in case of any other movements that you don't want to happen. The sample is then either coated with gold, with a gold layer of 10 nanometers, or if the sample contains gold that need to be analyzed, then it will be coated with carbon. Coating occurs under vacuum. Samples need to be completely dry before the step. To dry samples, you can place them in an oven at 30 degrees to 60 degrees, depending on your sample, and leave it there for at least two hours or even overnight. Some materials, like nanofibers, can undergo the same sample preparation procedure, but since nanofibers are very light, it needs to be secured properly onto the stub with carbon tape before placed into the vented sample chamber of the same. This is to prevent it from flying up into the lens uh, during the venting or vacuum pumping of the chamber. Once the vacuum is reintroduced in the chamber and the beam is switched on to begin analysis, the working distance is extremely important to pay attention to. The working distance is the distance between the tip of the lens and the top of your sample. If the working distance overshoots the distance between the sample and the lens tip, you will cause it to bump into the sample and this may cause serious damage to the lens and your sample. And for the nanofibers, for instance, I've seen that the fibers that are not secured lift up towards the lens and cause a charge. Other samples, like fruits that were coated with some type of antibacterial or antifungal coating, would require a more extensive sample prep since you are working with a fragile specimen that contains water and for this type of sample, you are looking for a fine detail, signs of bacteria or fungal presence on the fruit surface to see how the coating behaved. So firstly, this fine detail will need to be captured and preserved. To remove the skin of the fruit or the area of interest, you need a very sharp scalpel and the area should not be handled by anything like your fingers or tweezers. This section is then placed directly in a tube which contains glutaraldehyde solution uh, and then covered and stored in a fridge overnight. You want the exposure to glutaraldehyde solution to be as long as possible. This helps with the fixation of your sample and to preserve those fine detail on your sample surface. The method we will be discussing is one of the many protocols out there, so it's important to read and modify and experiment with the procedures to establish the best result for your sample. Due to the various attempts and pilot studies we have done with researchers and clients from industries, we have established that the following method seems to be the most effective at our electron microscope unit at Central Analytical Facility. So these are the steps. Number one, fixation is usually done with GLA, glutaraldehyde, or PFA, paraformaldehyde. Then step two, post-fixation. This is done with a buffer, usually osmium tetroxide is also involved. And then step three, dehydration. This is usually done with an alcohol like ethanol in a series of concentrations. Step four is drying, usually with a critical point dryer or HMDS. And step five, coating with gold or carbon after sample is mounted on an adhesive tape and placed on an aluminium stub. So to go into a little bit more detail, step one, you would normally use two to 2.5% 2 
liter aldehyde and submerge a sample fully for at least 4 hours at 4 degrees Celsius or even longer. This depends on your sample thickness. You need to give the fixation enough time to penetrate your entire sample. Some people choose to have PFA in their solution as their fixative. Form aldehyde is reversible, which means the network that is formed can be changed back to before the sample was fixated, which is useful for some. Uh, form aldehyde is usually followed by GLA fixation when shrinkage of the sample seems to be an issue. Step 2 requires washing with a buffer, such as cacodylate, and millicu-H2O, which is a water purified by resin filters and deionized to a high degree. The sample can then be post-fixated by using osmium tetroxide. Some studies exclude this step and we also avoid it if it's not absolutely necessary since osmium tetroxide is so toxic. Osmium tetroxide crosslinks lipids and renders them resistant to solvents, but can damage proteins. It is used mostly to stain biological membranes. We left this step out for the coated fruit sample in this case. Just to get back to the buffer that is used in this step, cacodylate, other buffers are sometimes also used like phosphate buffers. Cacodylate, however, avoids the microprecipitation that can form on thin sections with phosphate buffers. This usually happens if specimens is not well rinsed between the pre and post fixation step. Cacodylate is also the buffer of choice for marine samples since it does not cause precipitation in seawater. The buffer helps with the infiltration of the fixative into the thicker sample via osmication. So for your initial fixative step, you can add 0.1 molar cacodylate to your 2% GLA fixative. In step 3, dehydration of your sample is very important. Samples are most commonly submerged for 10 to 15 minutes in an ethanol series of 30, 50, 70, 90, and then 2 times 100%. This series of concentrations also vary in literature and some researchers tend to shorten it if they have many samples and wish to risk the quality due to time constraints. It is also important to know that dehydration with alcohol can remove chlorophyll in some plants. So if this is something you do not want, then you should perhaps lower the duration that the sample spends in the ethanol as the concentration is increased. Step 4 is the drying step, done with HMDS. This highly volatile solvent is added to the tube containing the sample and 100% of ethanol. This is done for 15 to 30 minutes and then the solvents are decanted and 100% HMDS is added to submerge the whole sample. This is done for 30 minutes again and then removed. The sample is then left either for air drying or placed in the oven. Critical point dryers can be used but not every lab has one so the HMDS step is most popular. Critical point drying is where the dehydrated sample is placed into a CPD apparatus with enough 100% ethanol to cover it. The chamber is then sealed and cooled and the apparatus will dry the sample without causing shrinkage and damage to the sample itself. Finally, the dried sample can then be mounted on the stub with double adhesive carbon tape and coated. And it then needs to be imaged and immediately placed back into the oven to avoid absorption of moisture. 
If the sample is wet or not conductive enough, it will cause a charge effect in the SEM once it is exposed to the beam, and this will cause an incoherent image to be formed. If you have a sample like an adsorbent that may contain elements you wish to an analyze using SEM-EDX, uh, and one of these elements you expect to see in your sample is gold, you will have to avoid coating with gold and rather use a carbon coater. This will prevent interference and false data to occur during your element analysis. Carbon coating is very common for researchers with geological samples. Next, for TEM sample preparation, there can be a multiple intrinsic steps for more complex samples, or it can be a few simple steps before analysis is done. Let's start with the more simple preparation method first. For this procedure, I am using a virus sample. We've all seen the surreal images of COVID-19 circulating the internet. These images come from using a TEM or a STEM, a transmission electron microscope or a scanning transmission electron microscope. The preparations for a TEM is mostly the same as for a STEM. There are always variations for the methods of these analysis techniques, so like I said, make sure that you select from a variety of sources. Samples analyzed on a TEM grid are usually ultra-thin slices or suspensions dropped onto a grid. The grid consists of a circular copper mesh and is usually about 3 mm in diameter. These grids come in various mesh size. The grid also comes in a gold, nickel or copper coated with palladium on one side. For a suspended sample, such as nanoparticles or a viral sample, it is usually required to further dilute the sample if it is highly concentrated, before placing a drop on the grid. 2 ml of 2% urinal acetate is made up by using ultra-pure water. Urinal acetate is very toxic since it contains uranium. You do get uranium-free urinal acetate called UA0. Many researchers still rely on both urinal acetate and lead citrate as a double contrasting stain for the sample analysis. These stains give differences in electron density when attached to a biological structure. Lead citrate interacts with the proteins and glycogens and is best used under carbon dioxide free conditions to avoid toxic white precipitate from forming. Urinal acetate contrasts by interacting with lipids and proteins and can also form a precipitation if excess urinal acetate is not rinsed off properly. Urinal acid is sensitive to UV light and will precipitate if exposed. So once your sample is pipetted onto the grid, you will hold the grid with tweezers. Then add 2-3 to three drops of urinal acetate solution onto the grid and allow it to roll off the grid into a waste collector. Allow the final drop to sit for 45 seconds on the grid. You will usually use a wetted filter paper corner to wick away the stained droplets. You should then allow the grid to dry, usually held by the tweezers. This takes an hour, so it's better to use self-closing tweezers. The grid is normally then analyzed immediately or stored in a special grid box. For more complex samples, you will need to add a few steps before the staining procedure. Some samples require more stabilization, which consists of fixation followed by specific staining and then embedding in resin. After embedding, the sample can be sectioned into ultra-thin sections, which can then be placed on the stem or TEM grid. For the sectioning, a glass knife is used, 
but diamond knives is used for the ultra thin sections. So the fixation step for stem and tim is the same as for sem in most ways. When we come to the ethanol dehydration series, we can replace the ethanol with propylene oxide. This is miscible with alcohol and epoxy resins. So this is an example that we will use for tissue samples where we want to embed the tissue samples in resin. The specimens are infiltrated with resin, diluted with propylene oxide and eventually then with 100% resin. After 36 hours of resin infiltration, the tissue will be ready for embedding. Each piece is placed in a small rubber mold and resin is added. The mold is then placed in a 60 degree oven for two days. A glass or diamond knife is used for sectioning of these embedded samples. 0.5 micron survey sections are cut and transferred using a fine pipette tip onto a microscope slide into a drop of toluidine blue stain, then dried and viewed under a light microscope to see where the areas of interest are. Then you can continue to trim the sections and create ultra-thin sections, which are commonly 70 to 90 nanometers thick. These sections are then loaded onto the TEM grids, and the final steps will be to stain with a heavy metal such as uranium or lead to enhance contrast, and then to allow the grid to dry. Heavy metals will deflect the electron beam, and areas in the sample that lack heavy metals will allow the electrons through. Other electron dense areas is where the heavy metal stains is present. So as a student, there may be some terminology that you come across during your search for the perfect sample prep procedure. Uh, we've already mentioned the staining such as urinal acetate and lead citrate that you can use. But there are different types of buffers and stains and fixatives available currently in the studies and research for microscope analysis. And for instance, there are alcoholic urinal acetate, which is a methanol-based urinal acetate, which is very soluble and gives better contrast. But it is disruptive to polymers, such as rubbers and plastics especially. You get aqueous urinal acetate, uh, which has a pH controlled at 4.2 and 4.9, and um, it is a 0.5 to 3% concentrate, usually. And it is a positively charged urinal species, uh, usually giving adequate contrast to negatively charged molecules such as nucleic acids. Then we also mentioned osmium tetroxide. Its non-polarity helps penetrate charged cell membranes. It's mostly required for TEM for contrast. It can also be used as a lipid stain in SEM as an alternative to sputter coating if you do not wish to coat your sample with gold or carbon. Osmium tetroxide prevents coagulation of proteins when exposed to alcohol during dehydration. And it is used to stain copolymers, preferably block copolymers. And then you have other types of things that I've not mentioned, such as alcine blue, which is also a stain, a polyvalent basic dye, actually, and it is used to stain acidic polysaccharides, such as glycosaminoglycans in cartilage and mucopolysaccharides. Now, alcine blue is usually paired with hematoxylin and eosin staining. Hematoxylin is a deep blue purple and eosin is a pink. 
This is usually used in tissue and cell sections. So hematoxylin stains nucleic acids, which are anionic, and eosin stains proteins, which are cationic. So usually in a cell, you would then see a nuclei stained blue, and the cytoplasm and extracellular matrix usually have a degree of pink dye. Hematoxylin is incompatible with immunofluorescence and can be used without eosin as a counterstain for immunohistochemical or hybridization procedures. Two other stains worth mentioning is von Giesen stain, which is usually used to stain collagen uh, and other connective tissue. Then we have periodic acid shift stain. This is used to detect polysaccharides such as glycogen and a suitable basic stain often used as counter stains. So there is quite an arsenal of information available for every researcher's needs and every sample type. It is important to go and do the research and make the decision based on a variety of sources. Also speak to your peers and speak to electron microscope analysts and make sure you make an informed decision before you start with your analysis. Oh, so that was an overwhelming amount of information. <laughs> I really hope you found this episode interesting and helpful. To tell me what you think of the podcast, you can leave a review or you can email your comments and questions to polymerscienspodcast at gmail.com. Remember to share this episode if you liked it and subscribe. Stay tuned for another part of this series of electron microscope analysis where we will be speaking about EDX and software and how to analyze your data and then extract it. Thank you so much for listening.